Okay, before I get to my next guest, Ian Baker Finch, I want to give a shout out to a couple of our sponsors, starting with our friends over at Strixon Cleveland Golf. Your best performance starts with the right golf ball at Strixon. A global leader in golf ball technology and innovation, Strixon offers a wide variety of award-winning golf balls for golfers of every skill level. Whether you're searching for a tour performance golf ball or a distance golf ball with incredible feel, Strixon provides the best golf balls at incredible prices. Strixon offers a wide variety of personalized options while also developing a highly visible colored golf ball as well. Select the right golf ball for your game today and trust it with Strixon. Check them out online at Strixon.com. S-R-I-X-O-N.com. Find the right golf ball for your game today. I also want to remind you about our friends over at Sun Mountain. There's a company nestled in the valley of Missoula, Montana, that embodies the essence of quality, function, and innovation, and that's Sun Mountain, which started building golf bags back in 1981. They are an industry leader in golf bags, travel covers, outerwear, and push carts. With flagship products that you've come to know, like the C-130 cart bag, the 2.5 ultralight stand bag, the club glider travel cover, the speed cart, and Rainflex rain gear. Sun Mountain continues its quest to provide the very best in golf products to every range of golfer. Visit them online at sunmountaingolf.com to look at their amazing products. Okay, now back in Next on the Tee with me is 1991 Open champion and now a fantastic broadcaster, Ian Baker Finch. Let me remind you about Ian's background. He's from Queensland, Australia. He turned pro back in 1979 and he credits Jack Nicklaus as his greatest influence saying he based his game on Mr. Nicholas's book, Golf My Way. He won his first professional tournament at the 1983 New Zealand Open. He finished third in the World Series of Golf in 1988 and started playing regularly on the PGA Tour in 1989. He won his first PGA Tour event at the 89 Southwestern Bell Colonial. He would win again that year at the Bank of Boston Classic. He won the 91 Open Championship at Royal Birkdale, finishing with rounds of 64 and 66 to win by two over fellow countryman Mike Harwood and three strokes over Fred Couples and Mark O'Meara. The following year, he finished tied for sixth at the Masters and second at the Players' Championship. In 2000, he was awarded the Australian Sports Medal for Achievement in Australian Sports. He's now clearly one of the best golf analysts in the business. And I'm very honored to have him back with me again tonight here on Next on the Tee. Hey, Ian, thanks for coming back on the show. Good evening, Chris. How are you? Lovely to be with you again. I'm fantastic. Thank you. Ian, I, I got to start tonight by getting your thoughts on this whole live tour thing. It's the talk of golf right now with the first tournament coming up this week. Do you think this tour is, is going to make it? Well, that's the uh, $64,000 question, isn't it? Is it going to make it? Um, it certainly made headlines uh, these last year or so, and certainly the last week. First, to, first ball gets struck on Thursday, and uh, you know I'll, I'll be up in Canada calling the Canadian Open, um, speaking to the people up there. They're not too perturbed by it, although they're one of their ambassadors, um, Dustin Johnson, has jumped ship, and he'll be over there. Um, I, I don't really know what the guys on the PGA Tour can complain about with, uh, with the way the tour is run these days and the way all of the world tours are run and the amount of money they have to play for. I'm not really sure um, why they'd want to leave or why that anyone would ever want to question anything that's being done here. 
but I understand the money is excessive and maybe the 54 holes and the shotgun start or whatever that may uh, end up being or whatever that appeals to them, I'm not sure, but I just know one thing, that if you're going to leave a legacy in the game of golf, you're going to leave it on the PGA Tour. You're not going to leave it on this uh, on this rival tour, in my opinion. If that tour were to fail at some point, and we know they have billions of dollars set aside, they have a three-year plan for sure, but if it fell apart in that three years or after that three years, do the players that have left the PGA Tour, do the DJs and the Phils and the Sergios and all those guys, is there a path back? Or do you think they've burned that bridge? I really don't know. I, I doubt it. And uh, I do believe this tour will continue on uh, through the, the eight events this year and into next year. And they seem to be um, telling the players that have signed with them that it's going to go for three years minimum. So what happens after these first few tournaments? We'll just have to wait and see what the ramifications will be. But... Um, for those that have resigned their membership, I'm not sure what the way back would be. Ian, as I've been listening to other shows talk about this tour, some of them are suggesting that the success actually sits in the hands of Fred Ridley, the chairman at Augusta National, because if the players that have been past champions, the DJs, the Phils, the Charles Schwartzels, the Sergios, suddenly don't get invited back next year to the Masters, or other players that would have qualified don't get invited back, that this tour has no chance. Do you think that really their success does rest in the hands of Fred Ridley? Do they get an invitation, you think, in the mail to come back and play? I, I really can't speak to that, Chris. I, I wish I could, but um, that's a long way off. I know the players that do play this week that are exempt for the Open Championship in, uh, in Brookline, the, the U.S. Open. I, I know they get expecting to come back and play with uh, the, the USGA people saying that they're, they're not doing anything about it, so they will be able to play. But what goes on after that, I have no idea. Ian, I want to go back to your playing days. And speaking of the Masters and Augusta National, that's a place you had success during the course of your career. You finished tied for 7th in 91, tied for 6th in 92, tied for 10th in 94. Talk about playing Augusta National and how you learned to be so successful there? Uh, you know, I loved Augusta National. I still do. I love doing the broadcasting there with CBS the last 16 years and with Australian TV prior to that, after my playing days finished in 96 there. Uh, it's a great golf course. The greens are superb. I think if I had been a little less aggressive with my putting style, I may have even done better. Uh, it was always my putting that let me down there rather than helped me. Uh, unfortunately, uh, I was known as a good putter, but I, I was a bit aggressive, so I had a lot of three putt. And I think that uh, when the greens get that fast and they're that perfect, good putters sometimes get too, I don't know, too too aggressive, too, they, they just, they start trying to hold everything. If you look at the record of uh, Masters winners, a lot of them aren't necessarily the best putters. A lot of them are great lag putters. A lot of them are great chippers, uh, great drivers, you know, not necessarily great putters. And uh, it's an interesting, it's a bit of a conundrum, really, because you think, oh, you won at the Masters, you must be a great putter because those greens are so good. But I think it's uh, the best strategic players that win there, the guys that... um, 
keep the ball under the hole, the guys that chip the ball well, um, hit their irons the right distance. I mean, great second shot golf course. It, it's just a, it, it's a, an amazing tournament venue. And, um, yeah, I had three top tens. It's funny. <laughs> Nick Baldo, who I work with at CBS and have done for 16 years, he had three top tens there as well. But his three top tens were three wins. <laughs> and, uh, we, we joke about that all the time. And in all the years he played there, he only had three top tens, but they were all, uh, they're all W's. But great course, great, great tournament, you know, one that we all want to go back and play. And Ian, like I mentioned in your intro, you learned how to play the game from reading Jack Nicholas's book, Golf My Way. And then in the mid eighties, early nineties, there you are playing in major championship fields right next to him. What was it like going from reading his book to playing with him? Hmm, yeah, uh, very special and, and being good friends with him now, sitting in the tower with him last week at the memorial and uh, being able to talk to him on the telecast like we do every year uh, is very, very special. He, uh, we, we live two miles apart. His house is two miles from mine. I played at his golf course yesterday here in at Lost Tree where he lives. Uh, down in, in Palm Beach Gardens, North Palm Beach. Um, he, I, I had the opportunity, my first time I played with Jack was the 1985 British Open. And uh, his caddy, uh, Jimmy, came over to me on the practice range and he said, hey, uh, would you want to come have a practice round? I said, yeah, I'd, I'd love to. He said, yeah, Jack's just waiting on the tee if you want to come join him. And the two of us went off and played a practice round in the Open Championship at St. George's in 1985. And that was a very special day and one, one that I remember vividly and remember lots of things that happened that day. And um, he, he's a great man and uh, obviously, you know, the greatest golfer of, uh, of the century and my idol and, you know, just a, a lovely family. So very, very honoured uh, and humbled to be able to call him a friend now as uh, having grown up idolizing him. And Ian, in 1989, that was your first full season over here on the PGA Tour. You get a win at mm -hmm. Colonial, and you do so going wire to wire, playing on a foreign exemption. You win that tournament by four mm -hmm. strokes over David Edwards. Talk about getting into that tournament and then walking away with your first PGA Tour victory. Yeah, it's a long time ago now, uh, but it was – I'd been playing in Europe and Japan uh, I was 28 years of age and my wife, Jenny, and I decided that uh, when we were going to have children that we'd move over and try and play on the U.S. tour. So late in 88, Jenny was pregnant and I decided to come over and play uh, a few tournaments to see if I could earn my card for the 89 season and uh, lost by a shot in uh, at the World Series of Golf. I led the whole week and I bogeyed the last two holes to lose uh, Mike Reed won in a playoff over Tom Watson. I'd played with Tom uh, the last couple of days. Anyway, I made enough money to, to earn a temporary card and played in 89. Haley was born in February. We moved over when she was three weeks of age. And the Colonial was just my sixth tournament that I played as a rookie uh, in that year and, and was lucky enough to win. Colonial's a great golf course. And at that point, Chris, as you may remember, uh, Arnold's tournament at Bay Hill, Jack's tournament at the Memorial, and Ben Hogan's tournament at the Colonial, they were the three big tournaments on the PGA Tour. 
and I won 180000 It was one of the very few million-dollar tournaments at that time, and it really set me up. It uh, validated my decision or our decision to move over here as a family, and we've lived here ever since. And now I do the TV and have done for 20 years. Uh, just uh, very, very fortunate. That was really the start of it all, and my daughter lived here, uh, and she has a little baby herself now, similar to the same age as Haley was when, when I won there, so uh, it's really come full cycle. Ian, just a couple of more before I let you go. And in '91, obviously the big win at the Open Championship at Royal Birkdale, and you burst into the lead thanks to a third round 64 that included nine threes on your scorecard. You mm-hmm. finished eagle birdie. Mm-hmm. Talk about what came together that round. Yeah, it was uh, Royal Birkdale that year. The, the greens had had uh, some difficulties and they weren't great. The weather wasn't good either. It was kind of windy and I think two under par led after two days. I was at two over. I'd shot 71-71. And uh, I just started holding a few putts on that third day. Uh, as you said, I made a nice eagle at 17 and hit it to a foot or so on 18 for another birdie for 64. And that just gave me the confidence uh, leading the tournament the next day, having led um, a couple of times before and being in the last group in 84 and 90. I just had that confidence to uh, to go on and get it done the next day. But that, that finish on the Saturday um, just gave me that self-belief that, hey, you can hold a couple of putts here. You know, go out tomorrow and do what you know what you've been doing all year and um, went out and shot 29, the front nine on Sunday. So... Uh, Birkdale is one of the great golf courses, one of the great uh, open rotation courses. I think all of the players would have Royal Birkdale in their top three, maybe alongside Muirfield or St Andrews. It's uh, maybe Turnbury now, but one of the great golf courses, certainly, that uh, the Open Championship is played each time, and I'm fortunate to be a champion there. It's, uh, it's kind of made my life, really. I've always been known as... Uh, you know, Finchie, the Open champion, and uh, got my name on that claret chug, which was always a, a lifetime goal of mine. I want to go back to the 80s now. And at the end of the season, you guys played in a team event. It was called the World Championship Cup, which was like a combination rider and President's Cup. You had teams from the U.S., Europe, Japan, Australia, New Zealand paired together. You got to play in that event a couple of times. What was it like getting to be a part of an event like that? Yeah, that was that was really uh, a, a fun event to play. It was six-man teams. It was called the World Four Tours Championship. So it was Japan, Europe, Australia, and the USA. And um, back in those days in the 80s, I think we played about eight years in a row, from 85, 84, through to 91 or 92, I think, was the last year they played it. Um, good fun. We played uh, medal match play. Uh, you, you, you had to shoot a score. It wasn't wasn't true match play, but it was um, you know you had to beat your opponent or get a half point for a half. And uh, Australia won in 1990 in Japan, which was a, a feather in our cap that year um, to play against the great players from the US and Europe. You know, Greg Norman would play and Curtis Strange and Hal Sutton and Nick Faldo, and it was uh, you know Jumbo Azaki from Japan. Sayo Aoki, Tommy Nakajima, they all, all of the great players played, which was, 
something pretty special. And for all of the tours to play against each other, uh, really meant a lot to be on the team for a start, but then to see how your game stacked up against the other players. These days, the PGA Tour is the preeminent tour, and all of the best players in the world play on the PGA Tour. All of the other international players, like myself, Australia is my home tour, Europe is is the European players, uh, English and, and European players, uh, that's their home tour. Um, they can go play their own tours whenever they like, but they all like to come congregate and play the, Euro- the US tour. And that's where the the competition is. If you're going to be one of the world's best players, you need to win on the PGA tour and you need to win here to perform well in the majors, in my opinion. So that's what we all aspired to do. And uh, really since 2000 on, I think it's like a 50-50 thing now. The PGA Tour is 50% international and 50% US. Um, actually, they could hold the, the President's Cup down here in Florida every year because most of us live here. They could We could all have a home game. But <laughs> it, it's, uh, you know, team, team golf is a lot of fun. But the PGA Tour is where... Uh, the stars are born and, and legacies and uh, history is created. Ian, before I let you go, remind our listeners, how can we stay up to date with all the great things you're doing and then obviously listening to you on the broadcast? You're broadcasting on Well, yeah, thanks. I'm, I'm with CBS Sports, um, have been for 16 years now and hope to be for another 16. We've got a great team at CBS. Um, I'm, I'm on Instagram, Ian Baker Finch on Instagram, but I'm not a self promoter. I'm not, uh, not trying to sell anything or promote anything. I'm just me. And, uh, I'll post a few family photos and a few golf photos occasionally from tournaments that we cover. But basically you can catch up with me from three to six Eastern every weekend on CBS. Well, Ian, I can't thank you enough for taking time out of your busy schedule to come back and be a part of the show. It's always fun having you here. I hope we get the privilege of catching up with you again soon. Thanks, Chris. Lovely to be with you. I'm, I'm sort of in between tournaments. Uh, you know, I just got back from the memorial today and heading out uh, tomorrow for Canada. Uh, should be good fun up there. The RBC Canadian Open is going to be a great event. It's uh, one of the truly great courses in North America, St. George's. So uh, make sure you tune in and watch. Absolutely. Take care, Ian. Thanks, All the best Chris. to you and your family. We'll catch up soon. Cheers, mate. See you, Ian. That is the great Ian Baker Finch. And, folks, you want to talk about just one of the best human beings on the planet. And as you heard Tim Simpson say in the first segment, one of the great putters ever comes out and shoots 29 on the front nine to start out his final round of the Open Championship in 1991 with Seve Ballesteros, by the way, only two strokes back at the start of the day. So talk about pressure and coming out strong. What a great tournament and uh, just one of the best analysts in the game now. Looking forward to catching up again with Ian. Hopefully, we'll do it in a few weeks as uh, we prepare for the Open Championship this year.